One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the House of Panda. My name is Kave. <clears throat> I think I'm saying that correctly. I am the host of this uh, little medical podcast. Um, and today we are getting back to the basics, We're getting back to the good stuff. Oh, the stuff everyone loves. Everyone loves talking about COVID and infectious disease. People just love it. They can't get enough of it. Mm, give me more of that mm, airborne viruses. Love it. Um, so we're going to talk about that today. Joining me to do that, uh, I have some really great guests. I'm really excited to have these two guys on. The first guest you all know very well. He is Dr. Ryan Marino. He is an ER doctor. He is a toxicologist. He has the most magnificent beard of any guests I've ever had. And it makes me so jealous because I want that beard. And it's so beautiful on you. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Well, hello. Thanks for having me back. Man, it's good to see you, buddy. I feel like it's been so long. It's only been like a month or two, but I feel like it's been for forever. Yeah. And I'm surprised you were willing to have me back here. Are you kidding me? You're like, <laughs> you're like my fave, man. I love seeing you. <laughs> Can I be real? Can I make you blush a little bit? Yeah. Seeing you lowers my blood pressure a couple points at least just seeing it brings me a <laughs> sense of peace a sense of calm i'm like i love the look at that face it's a lovely face i mean it's not this is a radio podcasting so people can't see it but you'll just have to trust me on this one it's a great beard but ryan thank you for joining me we're gonna get back to some of the original stuff that you and i first uh bonded over which is you know covid and that sort of thing kind of wanted to do a little recap of the last couple of years talk a little bit about where we've been, uh, what's going on now, where we're going, and talk about infectious disease in general. Uh, and to do that, joining us, we have Dr. Sanjeev Bakshi. Uh, he is an MD, MPH, PhD, RAD, EGG, GOD. Fantastic guy all around. Um, does a lot of consulting work. You are training to be a flight surgeon. Is that correct? How does that work, Sanjeev? 
That's right. You just get up in a plane and you train and uh, you fly it. You uh, you ride around and you um, understand physiology in a plane. Wait. Okay. So did you have, are you just doing this on your own or are you like part of like uh, the, uh, some government uh, program? No. So I'm in the, the Air Force Reserves and as part of that, um, you know, take care of uh, airmen and um, trying to sort of level up my ability to take care of flyers in particular. So that's what the training's about. Do you, do you have to like go through boot camp and go through all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. When I joined the reserves, I went to officer training school, which is effectively like uh, boot camp, which you can imagine as like uh, at the time, 34 year old man was just a very odd uh, situation to be in, but uh, you know, uh, we got through. <laughs> Wait, did they give you like a special boot camp for like old doctors, or did you? Did you oh, that's a very like... good question. Yes, we went. We went to sort of the special. We did go to the special boot camp for um, okay. like uh, you know doctors and chaplain and and people who joined sort of um, later in life. Um, so, in, in terms of how real boot camp is, I think it was far kinder, um, mm -hmm. but still it was jarring for a lot of us. So. Did you grow up watching Full Metal Jacket and Platoon as well? Um, I mean, I, I watched them. I, I thought they were great. I was more, I, I mean, I really did like MASH. So I was, mm -hmm. I was a late night TV kid growing up, you know, so like MASH was always great. Um, and that's actually the, the type of unit that I'm in. We're expeditionary medicine. So it is basically like MASH. So, uh, okay, sorry. This is, there's so much to talk about. This isn't the main focus of why I wanted you, but I find it just fascinating. Like I, this is the concept of me having to go to boot camp is just would be hilarious. Like I'd be like, yeah. you, you want me to climb that wall? Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, I, I had a 10 foot wall. I, go I had to it? jump, I had to <laughs> jump up on that 10 foot wall, pull myself up and throw my body over. Yes, that happened. Oh my God. <laughs> Okay, so you are uh, an ID doctor. You're an epidemiologist. Uh, we talked about you're doing the the flight surgeon stuff now, which is great. Um, uh, you've been deployed a couple times in in terms of our COVID response. Can can you explain what that means? Yeah, so as part of the Air Force, I deployed in 2020 to New York City at sort of the the peak of of kind of what was happening in the United States around March April timeline. So I, I went and deployed directly into a, a hospital and just served as sort of another set of hands and and kind of um, and, and another doctor just to take care of patients. I did something similar to upstate New York at the beginning of 2022, um, deployed again as part of the same mission. It's sort of a joint mission between Homeland Security and Department of Defense um, for COVID-19 support. So how was your brain after three years of being an ID doc in America during COVID? How, how are you doing <laughs> Uh, it's 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 exhausting, but I think it's um, you know it's just one of those things where because I as part of this I spent time you know with some international NGOs, state governments, federal government, um, and I think if there was a moment to step up and have your moment, I think COVID COVID nineteen was the ID docs moment, you know, and so um, if you were if you were going to sort of retreat from that. Um, sort of opportunity to be helpful i think you probably are in the wrong field do you feel like that 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 happened like were there id docs who were like all right i'm checking out i'm done I'm, i was about to retire i was thinking of retiring soon i'm I'm out of here anyways not none that i really know I, i'm sure just like others I, I i think there are a bunch of docs you know whether it be you know hospital medicine or whoever who just got really burnt out especially early on yeah. um and, and kind of mobilized either outpatient or or maybe even just retired. So so I think for some, it probably accelerated that. But I think so many ID docs, um, 
stepped up and, you know, working seven days a week for two to three years, just trying to keep hospitals running, serving public health roles, you know, serving patients out in the community, working on vaccine stuff, testing, you know, you name it. You know, we talked a lot uh, about criticisms we've had uh, or faced in the medical profession about how COVID has been handled, about COVID information has been dispersed. Let's go and give some grades if you would be willing to do this with me, this experiment. I want to give, I want to hear what you, how you would grade these people or groups that are commonly associated with COVID. Let's, let's start with the obvious one because you, you talk about being exhausted after these three years. I assume the exhaustion now isn't just the taking care of patients. I'm assuming it's all the other stuff that's come up in this, political stuff in, included. And there's been no bigger lightning rod, I think, in this country than, you know, Dr. Fauci. So what would your grade of Fauci and, and his handling of COVID be uh, now that his his tenure is coming to a close and you've had sort of three years to evaluate him? Yeah, so I, I've known about Fauci and his work, obviously, for a long time, probably for 20 years. I mean, dating back to his sort of rheumatology work in the 70s, his sort of landmark HIV work in the 80s, and then basically, you know, his, his sort of shepherding, you know, half a dozen presidents through uh, you know, understanding and and navigating infectious diseases. So I would say I would say two or three things just before I answer that, and then I'm happy to answer it explicitly. W- one, I think um, I think sort of grading Fauci over the last two to three years largely probably ignores 50 years of service to the country uh, in a specialty where you know probably no one else wanted to go do that work, um, advocating for people that no one else really wanted to advocate for. Uh, for a long time. I'd say that's one thing. Number two, when you grade something, you're always sort of thinking about relative to what. And so I'm, if I, like, it's hard for me to know what an A is, right? Because this is a um, a sort of experience that no one has lived through, uh, certainly domestic in the United States. Last time we had one of these, we really didn't have a vaccine for it, you know, a hundred years ago. So I, I think just the the sort of idea of like, how do we feel like people measure up, I think is it's just kind of difficult for me to 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 kind of uh, benchmark. And then I think that the third thing is, I think a lot of these things are played out over time. And so um, I, I would say in many respects, I think the United States is is sort of um, not kind of on a perfect trajectory, but we've we've done fairly well, um, especially in the last year or so with respect to COVID, um, when options were made available to people. And not everyone exercised those options, but of course, being part of a sort of collective in a free country, um, you know, people do have the right to make those choices. So, so sort of taking that together, I would say that like, I think, I think Fauci did quite well. Like, I, I'm not sure that there's a bunch of people that I would want uh, that I have in mind who, who should have taken his spot. And, um, you know, we've had a number of people who cycled through a variety of seats, um, you know, whether it be government or, or otherwise. And, and I think, um, him as a constant has been has been actually quite good. So I, w- I was really happy with with Anthony Fauci and and sort of his role and commitment and work um, throughout throughout COVID nineteen. I think that was a really good answer. And I mean, I'm I'm not an ID duck, so I defer to you here. But like, why why do you think he has gotten so much hate? Because I I agree with everything you said. Do you think it's just because of his visibility? Yeah, I think um, I think he has pretty 
concrete perspective, right? Um, they are, um, although largely mainstream, I think for the sort of sub kind of populations where they are a bit contrarian on things like diagnostic testing, vaccine efficacy, whatever it happens to be, I think um, I think it's um, just the, the most visible person to your point, Ryan, like he, he's quite visible. And then I think that, like he works for the government, right? And, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, he's, he's sort of putting himself out there a bit. And, um, and I think, and I think the last thing is probably, um, I think he was willing to maybe be wrong for what was right in the moment. I think the classic example that a lot of people refer to with that is that, uh, you know, when face masks were quite tight, especially N95s and early 2000s, early 2020s, I think like it was, um, it was Fauci who kind of led the conversation around, we need to preserve these masks for healthcare workers who need it. And then, you know, shortly after, um, you know, the government more broadly recommended masking as a, as a strategy to mitigate transmission risk. And so I, I think when you do those sorts of things uh, and you live in a place that's relatively unforgiving, you know, relatively intolerant of those sorts of misgivings, um, even if they're totally appropriate at the time, I think you're just going to get called out for it. It feels like he has been crucified. I mean, for that, uh, among a few other things, but I mean, that's probably like the biggest mistake that his detractors can latch onto. I mean, for lack of a better word, I would probably call them his haters. Um, but I think everyone in the medical community had had the same idea. This was the guidance we were given. It, it, it was totally normal at the time. And the thing that most people don't seem to be willing to accept is that like smart people take new information, change their opinions, can admit when they're wrong. And it feels like Tony Fauci has just been, I mean, crucified for like one thing that he did. He, he's given his justifications. He's admitted he was wrong. I don't know. It's it's very bizarre to me. And it feels almost like the, the political, politic, politicization. Wow. That's a, a score. Hard word to... No, you nailed it. Perfect. No notes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the politicization of COVID like ignores the fact that he was appointed to the role by by Donald Trump, um, and, and I mean tried to like do do what was right regardless of politics. I I really don't know like what we're missing here in terms of of Anthony Fauci as a leader in terms of science communication in, in general, not just infectious disease. I, I guess I don't have a question here. I was just kind of rambling. No, I, I, you know, I have the same, I feel the same thing. And, and it's funny to me because I feel like the detractors would, there was a moving target to figure out why they hated him so much. And it would be like the mask thing, or it would be like, oh, there was confusion over what, whether or not he admitted it was airborne or not airborne. And, and then there would be some confusion or there, they would, muddy the argument by by bringing up connections to to Wuhan and funding the NIH and things that like it was constantly shifting and no matter whatever you try to put out one fire there it would be like whack-a-mole some other weird story would come out about Fauci and, and pop up it was pretty relentless actually I, I was a I I am I'm not a huge fan of reading memoirs of like you know people who have like this moment like he's having and who, uh, but I think he does have a long history of service. And I do think he lived through a really unique period. I actually, I heard he is going to be writing a memoir. I probably will read it. I am curious to know, at least from his perspective, how he dealt with that kind of intense hate 
And I'm assuming that has affected ID doctors or the interest in going into ID, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, like, you know, he, um, Ryan, to your point, um, he has like prided himself on being nonpartisan. Uh, he was instrumental in, um, in George W. Bush establishing PEPFAR um, and, you know, shepherding that, that probably the most successful international aid program the United States have ever been a part of uh, is pretty significant. The impact there um, was an important part of the AIDS conversation, um, you know, with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. So I, I, I served George H.W. Bush closely. Like I, he prides himself on being nonpartisan. So he doesn't have like a, a sort of lean that he takes to work with him, you know, I, yeah. but, but I think your point, Kaveh, and like the, the ramifications of this, I think like the, the most recent data came out for, you know, ID positions. And I think, um, you know, something like 85% or 82%, I think it was 82% of the latest 2022 MASH data, uh, folks ended up, like, spots ended up getting filled. I, I think um, that's... So for our, for our listeners who don't know, what that means is every year there's this application process to, to get into infectious disease training. And I don't know if they usually fill, but I would assume that they normally do. But it sounds like there's been a drop off and there's those spots weren't filling because there wasn't enough interest in medical trainees going into infectious disease. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, I think that so. So basically, there has been a um, a historic decline. So I, I don't want to sort of attribute anything to to COVID unnecessarily to Fauci unnecessarily. So historically, there's always been a challenge in filling spots. And we, we can talk about why. I think um, there was a bump last year, which got people really excited. I think we went up to 88% or so of spots being filled, mm -hmm. but sort of everyone was kind of brought down to reality again this year when we sort of went back to our historical norm of filling about 82% of slots. I mean, I think the, the sort of rationale historically has always been, well, it's one of the few fellowships that where you do additional training and you end up getting paid less afterwards. So, right. um, that's, you know, in the traditional fee-for-service model, being a non-procedural field, it's really hard to sort of um, uh, to, to demonstrate more cleanly um, the quote-unquote value that one brings to the organization, although value can be measured in many ways. Right. I think the, um, the other sort of uh, idea on this was that, um, uh, you know, like maybe more recently with everything that happened with public figures like Fauci, but even other you know, figures, whether that be individuals at the CDC, uh, other individuals who are advising, um, you know, the president on the task force, um, and then sort of challenges that we're seeing elsewhere, you know, globally, um, that maybe it's less appealing for people. And, you know, maybe that... I couldn't, I wouldn't blame them. I mean, I do remember in the, like 2020, there was this sort of like uh, increase interest in people studying infectious disease. You're talking to young medical students who I deal with a lot and they were excited about it. They were interested in it. But after three years of seeing what, <laughs> like, I thought, you know, pretty reasonable uh, requests from the uh, public health and infectious disease community, how they were treated, how Fauci was sort of demonized. And and I don't think Fauci's perfect. And I think there's probably some legitimate uh, criticisms uh, of, of HIV and AIDS and how it was handled, very legitimate criticisms of how poorly it was handled in the 80s. But I mean, I, I think honestly, like to see the kind of hate 
that he got for doing, I thought, a pretty reasonable job overall, you know, doing his best, at least. I do believe that. And seeing that, I, I would I would totally understand why someone wouldn't want to go into that field. It would be almost masochistic at this point if you if you did, just seeing the kind of hate you get. I mean, did did it surprise you the kind of um pushback that people had? front to ID or to recommendations from public health doctors. Does that surprise you in any way? Um, I don't know if I was, uh, I, I think I was, I was surprised. So just to be fully transparent on it, I, I don't think it was as surprising to me though, because I just, I never really saw what the communication apparatus was for infectious diseases or a really like pandemics or epidemic disease before like we, we didn't have that capability right like there, there's not a person I could have gone to who I could have really effectively talked about that properly in the United States um some people who do work with WHO and otherwise probably have a better handle on that sort of stuff but um but nothing at this scope and scale so I I don't think we were prepared for that but but Kabe it, go, it goes back to this point that I think is really important which is like what is our expectation of people right like I I think perfection is like an entirely unreasonable expectation. Um, I think, I think in medicine, like, you know, people take an oath to do the right thing, um, you know, to like uphold maybe a higher standard than many other occupations. And I think that is totally fair and reasonable, but um, I didn't see any gross violation of those things. Right. And, and what I did see, and, and, you know, this, this could have been my experience, my observation, but what I did see is, you know, government employees, state and local employees working seven days a week, round the clock, trying to do whatever they could to keep hospitals open, you know, working, doing more clinical time um, than they could have ever wanted. And, um, uh, you know, being short of basically spit on when they go to work every day. So like, I, I, I'm just not like, what I don't understand is, is sort of, um, you know, what are people's expectations and why are they so extraordinary? And then um, to what extent have people violated those expectations in such meaningful ways that would warrant such, um, you know, difficult treatment? Yeah. Well, like I, I have a different theory here, and this is going to totally take this a different way. I mean, all of those are definitely valid points, but like you can take... Tony Fauci, I mean, became a celebrity, whether he wanted to or not. And I think he he did a, a good job of it, um, as good as anyone could be expected. I'm sure he did better than than I ever could do in that role. And he has much more more credentials and credibility to be in that role. But certainly, I mean, this was like the the moment for infectious disease and even bad actors got, got elevated. Um, there are plenty of people, I mean, Mon Monica Gandhi, uh, is someone who I think has had consistently terrible takes uh, and continues <laughs> to enjoy a life of celebrity and fame because of the pandemic. Um, so really, it, it's kind of surprising to me because if you're going into medicine and, and you want some sort of credibility, attention, whatever it is, um, this seems like it was the moment for infectious disease. And I actually feel reassured deep down, not not on the surface level, because there's a lot of problems here. But the fact that people don't necessarily want to go into this specialty after seeing how this has been handled, I mean, you look at the way people are handling it, it's been so politicized, it's been so controversial, people are spit on every day, as you say, I mean, like the state of Florida, their their COVID 
response person is, is someone who denies that vaccines work and says that that COVID isn't a real thing. Um, and that's not unique to Florida. Um, but they so do it really well. I mean, they like really, yeah. Florida, they really stand out in that way. Yeah. But people, I mean, across the board, and, and it's not just an infectious disease thing, but in statistics and epidemiology have kind of shown that, that there is really no, no bottom here. Um, and so, I mean, I, I tend to see like the, in, if there is a, a positive outlook here, it's that maybe people just don't want, don't want to deal with kind of the hassle of having to like wade through the, the Monica Gandhi's of the world and having to compete with them to get like good information out. And I can tell you, I mean, as someone who has, has plenty of stresses in my own day-to-day -day, like clinical work, um, I, I wouldn't want to deal with those kind of like logistical administrative nightmares, whatever, arguing with, with people who just want a soundbite. Um, so I, I don't know. Well, I well Ryan, yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I think the thing that was most surprising to me, and I, I think what you're talking about is, is a big piece of that is like, I actually was a bit taken aback by the extent of disinformation and I, I shouldn't have been so surprised, but like, I think, um, like it's just shocking, like how much um, incorrect uh, information or data is out there. And and but the thing that's surprising for me or difficult to me is I, I think it creates this, you know, really unfair um, sort of equity challenge, right? And that like I have you know whatever number of years of of training and experience, and um, I'm able to sort of look at things and sift through them in a different way and understand the sort of downsides or risk or how valid something might be versus not be, but, um, and, and then sort of do your best to kind of convey that to others. But I think like for the most part, most people don't really have an ability to do that, right? And so they depend or have historically depended on experts or, um, or, or, or sort of authorities, if you will, to help interpret and guide. Now, I think to your point, like everyone's trying to get their moment, right? And whether the information is exactly right or maybe a little bit wrong or maybe a lot wrong, right? It's much more about people getting their moment than it is about the information. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sort of challenge has been actually um, something that I'm, I'm just sort of a bit taken aback by. And like, I, I just don't know the answer, right? But like, I do think it creates massive inequity in, in information. And, you know, I've talked to you about this for a while, Sanjeev, and you've always been, I felt, pretty reasonable about this um, and and measured in your responses from about COVID, going back to when we first, you know, ran across it. But you're exactly right. That's not the kind of thing that, that ABC News is going to want to interview you about. They don't want somebody who's going to come out and they're not going to want a soundbite from someone who gives a pretty measured response. We'll be like, hey, let's let's see what the data shows. Hold on. Let's not jump to conclusions. They want someone to say something like, oh, yeah, yeah variant schmeriant. We're going to be fine. It's all going to be good. Or they want someone who's going to say something more outlandish on the other end, like, everyone in this country is going to die with this new variant that's come out. They want some crazy soundbite that that's, I think, a real problem in medicine in general. And in particularly now, because infectious disease, like we're talking about, is having this moment. But that's a real problem. Like the people I see on the uh, it's funny because because like, of the show, I have people like Ryan and people like Jeremy Faust come on. And it's really fun to then see them in a newspaper. Right. But for every one of those guys who gives like a pretty reasonable expert opinion and something that they've studied pretty in some great depth 
you know, you'll you'll get these sound bites from doctors who are now becoming known just for that, for these yeah. hot takes. And and that's that's frustrating. And I don't like seeing doctors compete for that. And I, that's one of the reasons I backed off of Twitter, because there's like this contrarian med Twitter section of people with a pretty large following. So it has to be taken kind of seriously, who just are it's almost like they're they're challenging each other for who could have the weirdest hottest take on, on these things um because they know it's going to get they know it's going to get likes they know it's going to get retweets and they know it's going to get eyes and maybe it'll translate to something that'll get them down the road like a a spot uh, as a fox pundit or something so it's really um that is really a a concern for me right now i don't see that necessarily getting better i i don't know what to do about that i don't know if that's science education or if we just got to wait it out or if we need people like you two constantly out there fighting and advocating and battling misinformation. You know what I mean? Well, I I think, and Ryan, I'm interested in your take on this too. I, I think there has been some serious harm done to institutions and um, and the sort of concept of expertise. I, I remember when I graduated med school, um, you know, what, one of the faculty uh, told me, he said, um, you know, it, it takes a lifetime to build your reputation. It takes only a moment to destroy it. Right. And I think I think that's collective. That's like just beyond any one person in medicine. I think collectively, because, you know, so many people have sort of used the moment in the spotlight um, to do as they please. We sort of um, we sort of put our expertise out there almost for sale or, or whatever. And, and I think that's a hard thing to claw back. Right. And so, like, um, if, if you're willing to sort of lower your standards on what it takes to make recommendations or to provide insights, um, it then becomes a playground for a lot of other people who don't necessarily have the expertise to parse through that information. Mm -hmm. And you're sort of playing like a very kind of uh, bizarre game where I think it's not about your training and not about what you're able to bring to the table. And it's more about sort of who's going to, who's going to have the more kind of, you know, to your point, hot take. I don't know, Ryan, what you think. Yeah. I mean, I think you both have been kind of like, leading in, in the same direction here with this conversation. And I agree. And I think, I mean, when it comes to infectious disease, virology, epidemiology, in the setting of the pandemic, we've seen like people who have no expertise in these topics become like vaulted uh, into. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Popular perception as experts. I mean, people who do like cash clinics for platelet injections into people's knees are now epidemiologists in COVID. Um, like that, that I think, I mean, really hurts everybody. And expertise is something that matters and not to be kind of like a, a credentialist or anything, but like I, I look to experts in certain areas for, for information. Um, and when the people who are dominating the conversation don't actually have the expertise or are coming at it with some sort of, intentional message or politicized message which feels very often um or i mean at the end of the day maybe it's just a that they were for sale uh and their message is is something that someone paid them to say that i think is worth mentioning um especially i mean when it comes to infectious disease because infectious disease doctors like you said they do a fellowship and then end up making less money and and I, as a medical toxicologist, I mean, I did <laughs> feel that <laughs> emergency medicine. Yeah, I, I could make a lot more money just being an emergency doctor. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. So. Yeah. So speaking of that, and, and we are going to go back at some point and give Fauci this grade. I'm not letting you off the hook on this. I'll, I'll it will accept pass, not pass. But before we get back to that, you know, given what you went through to become an infectious disease doctor, given the the pay you know i mean it's not bad pay but you're right you could get paid more doing something else easily in medicine so i'm not even going to ask if you would do it again because i I assume you would and i i think in reality whether or not it's true if i ask any doctor that they'll usually say they would do it again whether or not they actually would i don't know (laughs) but they would say it but let me ask you this if uh if your if your nephew came to you and was like, hey, I'm in medicine right now. I'm torn. I'm thinking dermatology, no call, <laughs> good money, good options, um, fairly chill lifestyle as being a doctor goes, uh, or infectious disease. What what would you tell them? Yeah, I, I'm still pretty idealistic about it. So if, if there's really, uh, and, and the last three years doesn't necessarily change how I thought about it. Um, I will say, you know, 10 years ago when I did my fellowship, the climate at that time didn't really impact how I thought about it uh, either. And so I would I would suggest them just to like to follow where their passion is, because I think, you know, life can be incredibly short and you, you may not be able to determine what sort of takes you sort of in and out of this life. But like you can at least make some decisions about what you're happy doing. And uh, and I. I've sort of said that for a long time and I, I stick to it still. Uh, and I, I would have, you know, back then still done it. I, I think it was very confusing people for people to have done infectious diseases and then to have gone and done epidemiology and then to do consulting after that. And it's, it's a bit winding of a path. But I think for me, um, you know, I got lucky in that it all sort of came together uh, where I could be helpful during COVID. Um, I think, 
uh, and a lot of that is just because I, I was really still excited about infectious diseases and, you know, the field and, um, you know, the dramatic, pretty amazing things, whether it's hep C or HIV or, you know, uh, you know, now with COVID coming up with a brand new sort of platform vaccine in 11 months, which is just mind blowing. Um, all of those things are still really exciting. That's well said. I, um, yeah. And so. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up too, because we could dwell on the like death of expertise, how the past three years have been a nightmare for medicine, for specialties, for all, all of this. But like, th there are a lot of positives to take out of this. And I mean, we developed effective vaccines in 11 months, as you said, there, there's many effective vaccines. I don't know what you think about like the latest controversy about the the variant specific booster. Um, but I mean, in terms of kind of looking at the future of vaccine technology in dealing with other infectious diseases, I mean, it seems like the future is very bright for infectious disease as a medical specialty. You guys are going to be accomplishing a lot of things that weren't able to be done ever before and probably no one ever thought was going to happen in, in this kind of timeline. So it still is to me really exciting when when I think about infectious disease. It was one of the specialties I I considered um, as like a, a medical student. Was that makes sense. That makes many, that totally many years out. ago. Yeah. That totally. Do you hear that young young kids out there, young youth out there trying to figure out what you want to do? It's a the cool kids do infectious disease. You should still do it. I think it's going to be great. I agree. Um, okay, so pass fail. A, B, C, what would you give them? Uh, definitely a pass. I Like an A for me would have to, like I'd have to understand what we're benchmarking against. That's that's my whole point is that like, yeah. I do think the standards out there are entirely unreasonable because I don't think perfection is a fair standard for anyone. So I, I certainly give uh, him and, and the sort of many of the other people who dedicated so much of their life over the last three years of the past, certainly. Okay. So let's move on to a different group then. Let's, let's move on to the World Health Organization, who, the WHO, not the awesome band that I, I love and probably was a prototype <laughs> for punk rock in the United States. We're talking about- it, That's the, what the World Health Organization named themselves after, right? I would hope. <laughs> uh, won't get fooled again. That That's for sure. Um, I don't, that didn't mean anything. I just wanted to throw in the, the title of a who song. Um, but, uh, so Sanji, first, before we talk about that, there was a lot of confusion initially. And I think the who or who, I don't know if I should call them the who that <laughs> doesn't make it sound like I'm talking about Pete Townsend, but they, there was confusion initially about whether or not they would call COVID airborne or not. Can you clear up that that confusion and explain maybe where that came from where that confusion came from yeah i'm i'm not um i'm not totally sure where it came from i i do i do know that as the sort of chief scientist left who recently she said her her sort of biggest regret was delaying the decision on um uh, you know calling it airborne um i think i think many people were uh and i i don't necessarily think this is what WHO was or was not doing, but I think many people were trying to be judicious about all of the additional resources that would be required should something be airborne. Um, you know, for uh, in, in more kind of developed economies, I think it's really, um, uh, you know, quite challenging to be able to manage everyone getting their own room, negative pressure, N95, etc. I think for emerging economies, 
um, you know, it just sort of leaves this open question about what are they to do, um, you know, with those sorts of recommendations um, and uh, without a clear plan in place. So um, I'm not necessarily saying that WHO or others made their decision based on that, but I think that was a consideration in sort of like what people are actually going to do with that information. Um, my sense was that um, it was always safest to just bias towards, you know, a little bit more protection uh, to mitigate and reduce risk. Um, and I, I always sort of operated under the assumption that it was airborne. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, other than that, any major critiques of uh, what they what they did or didn't do? I think it's it's um, it's hard for me. I, I generally don't want to critique the WHO. I, like that's my bias. Uh, part of that is because there were sort of threats of funding kind of looming over everything mm -hmm. that they were doing. Um, there was, um, they were sort of trying to do their best to, to kind of, you know, go to China and, and sort of learn and understand what happened and, and have a perspective coming out of that. And so uh, I think in order to keep that invitation open, you know, I think they were trying to very much just be um, kind of, uh, reasonable partners to them in, in the early part of COVID. So I think a lot of the criticism that ended up coming out, I'm, I'm, I don't know what they would have or should have done differently and why that would have benefited the WHO or why that would have benefited public health uh, more broadly for, for the sort of, like WHO is not there to represent the United Kingdom and the United States in interest, right? They're there to represent the sort of, you know, three, four, five billion people who basically don't have a voice in the world and um, and sort of struggle with basic considerations around health. And I think with that perspective in mind, I think they were sort of going out and just trying to, uh, you know, learn as much as they could. I think it's interesting too. I mean, the criticisms I hear the most about like not declaring it airborne sooner seem to at this point be coming from the people who would not have done anything with that. <laughs> exactly. They would not have changed anything. They would not wear a mask. <laughs> they would not wear a different mask. Right. Like it it seems to yeah. be very disingenuous criticism. Absolutely. And one other thing I mean I liked that you said is that like I you said you personally would err on the side of caution. And I agree. I, I would err on the side of caution. Like when I go out, I, I still wear a mask a lot of the time. Um and in in terms of I mean erring on the side of caution, what do you think about the kind of where we are today, where there's the people who are like COVID zero extremists, there are the people who are kind of like in the middle, and then there are the people who want want nothing at all. Uh, I feel like we're worse off than we ever were. We're worse than when we started. Um, the like public health people seem to have a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them seem to be at this kind of like COVID zero impasse where obviously that's not going to work. It, it hasn't worked for, for years and it is objectively too extreme in a lot of regards. Um, I don't, I don't know how you feel about how, how things have gone today. Yeah. I think with where we are today, I think I agree with you that there's this sort of um, polarity and like, you know, people have sort of gone to like where they were, you know, if they wanted to sort of be extreme about not wearing masks and sort of, uh, you know, not sort of being told uh, or expected, you know, like re with regard to how they act uh, in a public health setting, I, I think that's sort of one group of people. I think there's a whole other group of people who um, 
um, who are honestly like living in terror and extreme fear about COVID. And, and I think I think that, you know, as these things go, the truth is honestly somewhere in between, right? And that we, we don't know enough about like sort of transmission dynamics to feel comfortable about what we would say versus not say. Um, but I do think like, for instance, we know some some things to be pretty reasonable. Like it's probably okay to be outside, uh, you know, like in a non-crowded place, um, especially if you're moving, you know, like you can go hiking without a mask. I, th I think that's pretty safe to say um, and not super controversial. Um, I, I think um, people have, even in the setting, for instance, Ryan, of like getting vaccinated, having options on medications, et cetera, have, some people have not changed their posture. Like, you know, th they may be sort of triple or quadruple vaxxed, you know, they may have access to medications, but they still somehow feel like it's, it's not enough. And so in my mind, there's almost nothing you can do to sort of make that person feel sufficiently safe, right? And so uh, I think the big thing that I just struggle with is um, where were all these people, uh, you know, for flu, RSV, um, you know, everything that was happening before that we just accepted, um, even tacitly accepted as a society to be the normal ways in which we operated. Not to say that it was right. Like I've always thought it was ludicrous that you would take a bunch of sick people and you'd put them in emergency department waiting room sitting together, no masking or nothing. Like pre-COVID, it was just like ridiculous that we had all these people exposed to each other. But um, but that aside, like I we had some norms in society and, and these didn't seem to kind of bubble to the top. And so um, part of me, part of me is sort of worried that this is um, indicative of sort of broader challenges that people are having through this whole process, isolation, anxiety, depression, you know, fear, like these things when taken together uh, at the population level, don't usually end up leading to good outcomes. When you bring up though flu and, and RSV, I mean, your point isn't necessarily to compare and say that COVID was equivalent to them, uh, but it's to say we should have also been taking those things seriously too, and we still should. And, and right now with the triple-demic, right, we're talking about RSV, flu, and COVID, is it going, how, I mean, where are we at in, in this, in this triple-demic, uh, I don't know if people are still using that term or if that's already phased out, but where are we, are we in the middle of it? Are we peaked? Uh, you think that uh, it's going as well as it could be, or are you afraid for the next coming months of what will happen? Well, I, I'm, I'm afraid like very much here in the near term, just with all of the holiday exposure and travel and all of that, sort of what the implications are. I think RSV had sort of more or less peaked and was coming down a little bit. Um, it's it's still quite high. I think flu was on the rise, but it, it had sort of been on track with other years, except shifted earlier, like four months or something like that. You know, it's just like quite dramatic, the amount of flu we were having as early as we were having it. Um, and so the question that I always have with flu, when it looks a little bit early is like, are we going to level out and then have another peak, right? Mm -hmm. that, you know, like having an April peak is not mm -hmm. out of the question for flu, right? Like, so, um, so flu, you're never really comfortable, right? Until you, you hit the summer, uh, and, and, um, it's decided it's moved on. And even then sometimes we get, we get some residual. So, so, and then COVID is just changing dramatically. And, and I think if there's anything that we've learned is that like, um, like stop thinking that it's over and <laughs> just start accepting that it's part of the way that we're going to have to live and operate. And we're all going to have to sift through again, here's the information problem, sift through endless amounts of information to be able to mitigate and manage risk on our own. 
And again, if you don't have reliable people and sources of information or an ability to sort of discern amongst information on your own, um, it it just creates chaos. You know what? What's uh, this shouldn't have surprised me, um, but I'm a dummy, so it did. But it, it the way things have fallen on political lines have surprised me here, and like. <sighs> Okay, I'll give a weird example. I don't know if this is exactly related, but this is what it reminds me of. Here in San Francisco, when COVID started, um, they shut down some streets to traffic so that people could have space to walk around in. Because I think, you know, generally it was assumed fairly quickly that, you know, we could be outside relatively safely and people wanted to have places to walk around. And so they closed down these streets and they're called slow streets. You can drive through them if you are like if you live there, it's for you know local traffic only. But um generally it is they're very like well received. People in the neighborhoods love them. There's one in my neighborhood, it's amazing, it's great. The kids get to ride their bikes on it, and there's cars still and Amazon trucks and still, but generally it's it's more for like people walking and kids playing and people walking down the street. But not everybody likes it. For some reason, there are people who fucking hate it, who, and the reasons aren't entirely clear, but it really falls and breaks down on party lines. <laughs> there is, <laughs> I was walking down the street the other day, and this dude was so mad that there was people walking in front of him. He started yelling and screaming, and he was like a guy who lives on the street. And I look back, and I'm like, what is the story with this guy? And in in not surprisingly, it was like a dude with like, you know, blue lives stickers on his car. Uh, don't blame me. I voted for Trump, Trump 2024 sort of stuff. Uh, and I, I got involved and I shouldn't know because I'm dumb. And the guy starts yelling at me and he's like, you, I don't want to use the, 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 the word, but the, the derogatory word for homosexuals. And um, I still a lot of gay valor, by the way. So I think he assumed that I was. Um, so like, I I, and I don't mind. I'll, I'll let him do that. Um, and and we got into this shouting match and it was the most bizarre thing. And he was just like mad at me for being liberal. And I'm like, how do you even know that I am? And, and what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about here? It's like, I was so shocked that this dumb thing somehow became a some somehow political when it's just about people walking down the street and and now this has happened here in medicine and it and it still blows my mind i don't get it w let me ask you this what do you do you think it's always going to be like this in medicine now is medicine going to be political is it is there any is this what's the next thing to be politicized is it the new vaccine what's the next thing that's going to be politicized in a weird way that will shock me and that I don't see coming. Drugs. Drugs. <laughs> oh, fentanyl? You think that might be it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's happening for sure already, right? That's the that's the thing that's absolutely happened. What what about what what else is there? What else is there? What's the next frontier of politicization of of uh medicine? Is it colonoscopies? What what is it going to be? I I mean, I think um I think immunizations are always and have been really challenging, you know, starting with the the sort of subgroup analysis in the Lancet paper on autism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, largely, um, uh, I mean, found to be sort of fabricated data, um, but sort of ticked off a, um, 
uh, a huge sort of uh, groundswell, I think, of people who felt emboldened. Um, and um, and ever since then, I think it's uh, on the immunization side, at least, it's been quite um, quite challenging. If if you go back, for instance, to polio vaccines, uh, there were I was talking to some folks who were around here in Northern California. Um, when polio vaccines came out and they were like, oh yeah, you know, like I, I remember going out to the, the, the Concord Navy yard and we all lined up. Right. And like, there was, there were, we would wait in line for hours to get our polio vaccine. Right. Like mm-hmm. there, there was almost like a, a national duty, right. To, um, to do that. Um, and then you fast forward sort of 50 years, whether it be kind of the MMR vaccines and then, uh, then all the way through to COVID um, anything where, you know, um, someone is recommending that you do something for someone else's benefit, I, I think is um, potentially challenging. I, I do think, though, I will just step back and say, I think medicine has largely just been polarized. I, I think this sort of opiates conversation, Ryan, extremely polarized, I, I polarizing. I think the, um, I think the, um, uh, you know, the, the more recent stuff with Roe v. Wade, um, you know, these are all decisions that are made. Again, no matter where you fall, on the spectrum here, these are decisions that are made that largely um, sort of undervalue expertise, mm-hmm. like because we've sort of allowed it to be that way. Like, like these are all decisions that are largely made without, um, you know, uh, practical or reasonable voices, and um, that's just not medical people letting that happen, right? That's that's yeah. people electing people to bypass medical decision-making because they don't agree with it. Right. So you, you can't always solve that problem. But again, if we're not leaning on expertise and, and, you know, what the best and right answers are, then we're, we're sort of putting the whole thing at risk. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think it's all of public health at this point, like vaccines are, are a great starting area. I mean, COVID, any sort of like non medical intervention that we have recommended for COVID has become very politicized and dramatized, I, I would say. Um, I mean, drugs are, are a great topic, but it's it's really in any sort of sort of public health. And again, we're seeing it right now with like air quality and I mean, gas stoves, as if that's like a political issue. We have consumer safety groups who, who do research and make recommendations. Um, and so that that again, I mean, I think just the entirety of public health has been so undermined. Uh, maybe maybe it didn't really have have the footing it we thought it had to to stand on to begin with. But yeah, I mean, in terms of doing kind of like overdose prevention, air air quality, vac- vaccination, public health, infectious disease, all of this stuff, I mean, seems to have suffered detrimentally over the past several years. Uh, global health also right like the the sort of support of of um of the sort of countries where uh they have limited access to medical interventions whether that be you know vaccines or medications or whatever happens i mean that has always come under fire i we, we do spend a large amount of money there but i think we um we also do a huge amount of good um frankly so you're a real positive guy sanjeev i love it um give give me before we close up Two things. Let's give 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 one more plug for uh, the because we have a lot of medical students and uh, listening to this in pre meds. Let's give one more plug for for ID epidemiology. Let's um, I'm gonna give you uh, a moment here to to tell them why they should at least consider it. Yeah, I, th- I think there are just a few simple reasons. It's one of the few things that you do 
um, where you treat to cure. Almost every single person that you're going to see, you're going to treat to cure. And those that you can't cure, um, we have pretty darn good medications for a lot of it to, um, uh, to sort of help you treat uh, patients and, and kind of live a, a long and relatively full life. So I think that's that's kind of one thing. Um, two, it's one of the few things where you sort of specialize in something without necessarily compromising everything. So if you if you're if you're like me and you sort of love it all, um, ID was great because um, you still had to have a lot of core basic knowledge uh, in order to um, uh, to to sort of do it effectively and actually do it really well. And then the last thing is. Um, you know, if you were to take off your kind of, uh, you know, uh, U.S. hat and put on a global hat, um, infectious diseases are still the most fundamental and maybe important thing happening, whether it be children under five, whether it be sort of, uh, you know, um, emerging economies, wherever you go, um, it's it's still sort of the, the kind of biggest threat. And um, and I think as we look ahead to the next like 30, 40, 50 years, just with the sort of climate uh, transition happening, uh, the amount of pandemics fundamentally shifting, the amount of uh, multi-drug resistant organisms uh, just expanding on a daily basis, whether that's TB or, you know, uh, CRE or whatever it happens to be. So uh, Canada, for instance, not super excited about that spreading globally. So, um, you know, the, the need is tremendous. The relevance globally is higher than it's ever been before. Um, you get to sort of learn about everything. And, um, and, uh, you know, you get to, um, you get to treat people to cure most of the time. So I think that's, that's pretty yeah. compelling to me. Yeah. Well done. All right. I'm going to do it. Fuck it. I don't have to go in at night, right? When they call me. Um, yeah, oh, rare, rare circumstances. I'd say the couple times are one, uh, malaria. Uh, if somebody oh. has malaria, I I've mm -hmm. gone in for malaria two or three times. Mm -hmm. And then, um, if somebody has, um, uh, you know, bacterial meningitis, um, okay. they could, they could die. So, um, mm -hmm. so I've gone in for bacterial meningitis once or twice, All but right. that's okay. it. It's pretty yeah. exciting stuff. All right. Okay. Yeah. I'm sold. Um, and where can people follow you, learn more about you, read about you, whatever, what, what, what else do you have to plug about yourself? Oh God, I'm, I'm terrible at that. So I don't, I don't really have anything to follow or anything where I could, um, you know, benefit from people paying attention, but I think, um, I, I'm not terribly difficult to find. I think all my information is online. So, uh, especially if you have positive things to say, please reach out and, uh, and happy to, um, happy to sort of pick up a conversation with anyone. All right. That's Sanjeev Baxi spelled B-A-X-I, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right, Ryan. Um, where, 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 where can people, where people want to know, how do they find out? Where did, where's the Ryan? Where it's the stuff that the Ryan has? What, where can they find you? Um, I guess I'm still on Twitter at Ryan Marino and on Instagram at Dr. Ryan Marino. And it, uh, you're following him already. So I don't need to tell you to do that, but if for some reason <laughs> you just learn how to operate a phone or a computer, uh, make sure you're following him. Um, all right. Thank you to Nadim. Uh, I'll plug. I'm going to be at Sketchfest next weekend on the 21st. I'll be doing an episode of Behind the Bastards live. That should be a ton of fun. I think it's sold out, but I was told that there might be tickets at the door. I don't know. Um, but you should do Sketchfest. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, you should definitely check out Sketchfest. It's a couple of weeks where we have all these great comedic acts coming to town. The kids in the hall are going to be here. Uh, all these, like, there's going to be a perfect strangers reunion. Come on. How, how rad is that? A roast of Bruce Campbell. It's going to be a blast. So 
It's like one of my favorite uh, times of the year here in San Francisco. So I, I recommend checking it out if you're in the area. Um, and if you want to follow me at Twitter, it's at the House of Pod or just listen to the show. Thank you guys so much for coming on. It was really a pleasure. You guys are, are, are awesome. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, you're awesome. I am. <laughs> this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.